You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today I have Derek Abrahamson on the call. And Derek, I, I ran into Derek on social media, and I, I found your page, and I, I was like, wow, you do you spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And Part of it is for fun, and it appears like part of it is your job. I mean, you have a career in the outdoors, so I thought it would be a really exciting conversation to have you on and just talk talk about the West. How are you? How does that sound to you, Derek? Sounds good. Um, yeah, I, I tried to, to find a career path where it didn't really feel like I was necessarily uh, working, so uh, I, I do spend a lot of time out there. Yeah, so you – it says wildlife biologist, and you. We talked a little bit in the green stream how that used to be your official title, and then you've switched a little bit. But did you, did you get go to school or training like in, um, for wildlife biology? Like you, you obviously like. Does that mean you formally trained in in biology? Yeah, I uh, I, I did a two year program in Spokane, Washington, uh, for. I got my Associates of Applied Science for Fish and Wildlife Management, and then I transferred down to the University of Idaho and got my my bachelor's in wildlife resources. Wow. So it seems like if someone loves the outdoors, if you could become like a big game biologist or a wildlife biologist, especially in the West, man, I I feel like that job, I mean, obviously there's some weather, you're going to be outside and it's going to be raining or snowing or hot sometimes, but... For all of us that just love the outdoors, I feel like that's a pretty a pretty solid career path to have a fulfilling life. Yeah, it's it's. I, I guess it's uh, th- there's a lot of uh, stuff that is behind the scenes that that people don't realize. You know, I'd, I'd say 
20% of my, my job is in the field and the rest of it is a lot of grant writing and yeah budgeting and, and things of that sort too. So, um, but the, the 20% that I do get in the field really, it makes it worth it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one thing that I was, I was really interested in when I saw all of the adventures you've been on is the two things. First of all, I did not know Washington was known for some of the the caliber of elk that you have both tagged and also just pictures of trail camera pictures of. So the the first thing is those must be those aren't Roosevelt elk, are they? Those are the Rocky Mountain, you know, like the American elk. Yeah. So those, um, I mean, some of those are from other states, uh, Montana and such, but a lot of those are from Washington State, and those those are Rocky Mountains. Um, uh, as a program here. We did a elk reintroduction. Elk numbers were super low in our area. We did a, a release um, of elk from Wind Cave. Okay. And then we did another release from the Hanford Reach out of Washington State. So, and that was in '91. So since then, the the elk herd's been been growing pretty good. Yeah, it definitely looks like it's been growing. And then the second thing that I thought was really interesting was the size of the whitetails on your page. Now, this one, are those? Are those Washington whitetails or are those, are you traveling for some of those whitetails? Cause there are some hammers, which obviously the West has big whitetails, but I wasn't expecting Washington to be one of those States. Yeah. Those are all from Washington. I've never, uh, I've never hunted whitetail out of Washington state yet. Okay. Just getting pictures of them or, or oh, I see what you yeah. mean. Like you have never left the state of Washington to hunt whitetails. Yeah. I've, I've had a deer tag in my pocket here and there. This kind of, I really like elk hunting, so um, when it's uh, applicable, uh, I'll put in for a whitetail tag and just to have it in my pocket. But I've I've yet to harvest a whitetail out of state. Oh, there you go. Yeah, which the caliber of some of these animals we were talking about a little bit before we started the podcast. But you work for the the tribe and the reservation as the wildlife management team, as part of the wildlife management team. But it it appears whatever you guys are doing is working because you have some, some really high caliber um, animals that you've obviously had on your adventures. Yeah. A, a lot of it's just through, through proper habitat management. You know, we, we, we've put habitat as, as number one and it, it seems that the, uh, the animals do the rest for us. So. Oh, do you think by being a part of the tribe and working for the reservation, it, like, do you guys have more, I mean, we talked about you guys have a little bit more power because the politics of, like, Seattle don't influence as much what you're doing as it would maybe the game and fish, but does it also allow you to have, like, better funding and easier access to get these projects done? Uh, I wouldn't say we have better funding. You know, there's there's a lot of grants that come, come through periodically throughout the year, and some of those are directed at tribes. Um, a lot of times they're... You know, if they're federally funded, they'll allocate so many percent to tribes, but that's open nationwide. So, um, you know, if if there's millions of dollars available, you know, they might set aside 10 percent of it um, specifically for tribes. But it's we're we're putting in for the same grants that like Washington State could get, you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation could potentially get, you know, other entities and agencies. Okay, it probably does make it a little bit more streamlined to get the work done once you get approved for the grant because you're working with 
I would kind of say like everyone's on the same team, maybe more so than if you have to deal with the entire state of Washington and all the people in Seattle want one thing and all the people on the east side of the state want another thing, then it can probably be pretty hard, even though it's funded, to actually get it through and get it complete. Yeah, and we're pretty streamlined. It kind of so as a wildlife program, we report to there's a a wildlife committee that's appointed by our our tribal council, and they they decide the the seasons and the regulations, and that's upon from the wildlife program's recommendations on what we're seeing with population dynamics and numbers for the year and and things of that sort. So we we kind of work out our our goals together and. Uh, make plans from there okay so one thing that I've always wondered and I'd be really curious to see how it works for you in Washington is I've I've seen a lot of people like especially when I lived in North Dakota because they had big game on or you know they had elk on reservation land whereas like Minnesota where I'm at now we just really have whitetails as big game species and some black bear but they're pretty evenly distributed across the entire state so it, it's the same opportunity whether you have, like, private land or, or tribal land. And so no one really talks about hunting, a tr- getting a, a reservation license as much as they do maybe in the West. But that's something I've always been curious about is, like, is it common that, like, a, a non-tribal member or a, um, someone that has no Native American um, ancestry or genes at all can apply for a tag on a reservation? So that all depends on the reservation. Um, there's there's over 500 different tribes in the United States. So 500 tribes, 500 different treaties or agreements, and 500 different rules of, of fish and game regulation. So uh, on our reservation, we do not allow for hunting. We, we do allow for um, spouse tags and first-line descendant tags. Okay. We allow for um, non-member fishing in our reservoir, but on, on our tribe, we, we don't allow for public hunting. Okay. So if you do find a tribe that allows public hunting, you could apply for it, and then obviously it just comes down to whether or not you get it, or maybe if there's a tribe that has over-the-counter and you could purchase it, that sounds like it could be an option. If you Are you familiar with any like reservations or tribes near you that, that offer that opportunity? Yeah, correct. So there's there's various tribes. I know um, the the reservation across the river from us. They 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 sell tags for like chuckers and um, game birds and things of that sort. I know the uh, uh, one of the tribes on the coast. They have really big black bear that they sell hunts for. And I think you're required to have a um, a tribal member as a guide. Same thing goes with, along the lines with like say the uh, San Carlos or White Mountain Apache. You know they have gigantic elk and they're they're selling hunts for, you know, I've, I've heard numbers of $70,000. So it, it just depends on the reservation. This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors, creators of the only American-made fire-insulated modular gun safe on the market. That means you no longer have to convince three or four of your buddies to help you move your safe. No more blown-out backs or pulled muscles and no more dings and dents to your home. They recommend having two people to lift and assemble your safe which would make it incredibly easy because I just put my Recon 32 together by myself and I had it set up in less than an hour. I carried each panel of my safe into my home with just my two hands, yet once assembled, it had the same security and ruggedness you would expect from a gun safe. 
They have designed an integrated door frame, so it is nearly impossible to get into your gun safe without the code, which means your firearms are always 100% secure. Before I had my Steelhead Outdoors safe, I needed to get three buddies to help me move my old safe in and out of my home, and it was always the most stressful part of moving. But not anymore. Plus, every Steelhead Outdoors safe is made right here in Minnesota from start to finish, which means you are supporting a local business when you buy a Steelhead Outdoors safe. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com to see all of their size and color options and pick the right one for you. And use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, WESTERNROOKIE, to save $150 on your Steelhead Outdoor Safe. Oh, wow. So, I, when I think of, like, reservation land, I'm most familiar with, like, Montana and North Dakota, which I, I understand might not be your, your, your strong suit because that's on the other side of the mountain range from you. But I've always been worried that even if I got a, a reservation tag, would it feel like an outsider encroaching on the people that live there as resource? Cause I, I understand it. I mean, in a way, like if I found someone hunting on my farm here in Minnesota, I wouldn't want them to be there. Like I, this is, you know, something that I've built and this is my home and it, does it get that feel or would it, if the tribe is open to public hunting and you can buy a tag, is people there um, pretty used to it and, and common with it? You know what I'm saying? Like I just, it's so unfamiliar to me. I don't want to like. I don't want to do something that's gonna be not received well by the local people because I don't want to like. I don't want to impede on their resource and on their home if if that's not what they really want. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I imagine anywhere you go, there's you can get that out outsider feeling um, coming in. You know, even you could me being from Washington, I can go to Idaho and buy a. General elk take and get that that feeling just because I have Washington plates on my pickup. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the tribes that do allow for hunting, a lot of those profits directly go back into the fish and wildlife programs. Okay. So I, I think there's a there's an understanding that you know that this is for the overarching benefit of the fish and wildlife species on on those reservations. Yeah. But I, I imagine you you still get the the few people who just Aren't, aren't happy with anything i guess yeah maybe it would be best to like at least go guided if it's even allowed to go unguided that's a that's a separate thing but like go guided so you have someone that's from the local community that can kind of be with you and say yeah this is how we do it and then if anyone does stop you they know that like you're doing it right like you have a you have a guide from the from the tribe with you you're you know you're following the rules maybe that'd be the way to go i like how you mentioned like the plates thing because that is big um, and yeah. I have Minnesota plates, which is one of the worst received plates in the Midwest when you go out of state. Like when, when you go to Montana and you have a Minnesota plate, you really get the outsider treatment. And I think, you know, we typically see a lot of Washington and a lot of Minnesota plates at trailheads. And I think the locals just, they start to get sick of like everyone's coming from, you know, Minnesota to hunt my elk. Yeah. I've, I've had that feeling too. I've, I've, I've hunted elk in Idaho and, and uh, got that feeling, you know, they, they see my Washington plate. and <laughs> So, yeah, it depends on where you go, how welcoming it could be. Yeah. Yeah, that we'll see. The Colorado will be new for me. Um, I don't know if it's going to be as bad as it is in the past, but we're headed to Colorado archery season in just a few weeks, actually. By the time, 
No, I don't think this one will quite be. This one will be before we go. But a couple weeks after this airs, we'll be in Colorado elk hunting, which I'm excited for. But our tag is like basically an over-the-counter tag. And so it's not nearly as exciting as what you've got lined up this year because you said you have two limited entry elk tags this year, it sounds like, right? Yeah, well, I'm actually, so depending whether um, there's a lot of fires around, uh, I guess, the Fairbanks area and it's blowing smoke into the hunt area, um, we're kind of listening day by day. We're supposed to go to Alaska for caribou on Sunday, um, this coming Sunday. So that's that's first on the list. And then uh, I have, I I drew a reservation muzzleloader tag um, here in Washington state. And I also drew a elk tag on the Navajo reservation. Um, and that's a, a spouse tag. My, my wife's Navajo and I, I down there, they also draw for non-member tags. So that that's also a possibility. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that, I assume it's probably not much easier than like a non-resident off reservation tag to draw. I mean, obviously the a majority of the tags they pick are probably going to tribe members, spouse tags, you know, the what you would maybe think of more as a resident, obviously it's a little different, but I'm assuming it's a pretty small percentage for, for us folks that are non-resident and non-native. Yeah, the the number, I think for the, the tag I drew, I, I think there's, uh, I might be wrong, but there's four or six spouse tags available, and I think there's about the, the same amount for non-member tags. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I might have to look into that because New Mexico is on the list. I know it's, that, that's only part of the reservation, but New Mexico is on my list to elk hunt one day because I think it would be so much fun, especially after shed hunting down there and just seeing the different type of ground. Um, but the so you've you've shot a, a few elk, it looks like, and you, you you're around them all the time with your job, whether it's in the office planning for the elk or in the field doing projects for the elk. I mean, I see some heli- really cool helicopter pictures of like bulls traveling in the winter and stuff like that. So when it comes to these limited entry tags, are you setting a specific bar for what you want to see and get out of it for, from like an animal standpoint? Like, do you have a, a number in your mind that you're going to, going to hold out for? Uh, in my mind, uh, I'd like to hold out for 350 plus. Um, and that's, I, I think, um, I think I've hit that number a couple times, and I just, uh, s- since I, I get the opportunity to fly the reservation, and uh, I, I, I hunt the reservation a lot too, so I, I feel like that's an achievable number with one of those special tags. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think that's a fun goal. I've, I've hit that number one time in my life. And man, is it a special bull when, when they hit numbers like that. I mean, they just have, they have more character, more mass. They're just, I love it. I get, I get so ate up with big elk that I, I definitely feel you with holding out for an animal like that, especially on a special tag. I mean, I shot mine on a once in a lifetime tag, so I can't even apply for it again. And I knew there was big elk in the area. So I definitely held out. Um, And so it's, it's, I always ask because elk are such a, an interesting thing where you can have someone like yourself that lives in the area and most people can't fly the range, which that's a huge advantage to you all summer long, being able to like just get eyes on and see what's out there. But some people live there and they can hold out and they can hunt all season. And other people like myself have to travel and we get seven days to get it done. And so 
in a, in Colorado, for example, I'm going to shoot the first legal elk, whether it's a cow or a, a legal bull. I'm not holding out for anything with my bow. Versus, I've already shot and I've already shot a 350, but that's because that tag was so special that I waited and passed up a few elk, even though I hadn't shot one at that time. That was my first elk was a 350. And so I just I like hearing what people what their goals are because it's really interesting on hunts like this to be able to to really look at some bulls and pass them up. I think that's my favorite part about hunting the West is the number of game you get to lay eyes on. And if you have the right tag that allows for it, you get to pass up some and, and be a little picky. And I love that. Yeah. I've, uh, fly, fly in the range. You know, I kind of just more or less get a, get a, a index on, on what's around. Um, since we fly in about the, January, February months, um, everything's in its winter range. So that that's not extremely beneficial to, I think, like the archery and muzzleloader seasons. I, I've huh, I've never shot a big bull with a rifle. Um, uh, on reservation, what happens is if you don't draw one of the special tags, we have a, a general rifle season. And that's, uh, I, I guess I'm the opposite. I, I don't hold out with a rifle but I will be picky with a bow in my hand or a muzzle loader. So is it with the, with those two seasons then, is there a drastic difference in like the challenge? Like, is it hard, is it just hard to, to find mature elk in rifle season because of the time of the year? Or is it more so like at that point in the year, you're just looking for meat in the freezer and you want to bring something home to feed the family. It's, it's both. It's, um, it's also, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people out during our general season. And, you know, I, I have a, I have five kids too. So filling the freezer gets pretty important. So if, if I see something with a horn on it with during our, our general rifle season, it's, it's going down. Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I don't have five kids, but me and my wife eat a lot of meat every year and it, you start adding it up like a, a white-tailed deer doesn't make much of a dent in the in the the meat needed for the year number. You know, like we we go through like 300 pounds of meat a year, and a white-tailed doe only usually has 30 to 40 pounds of meat on it. So it really helps when we get an elk. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, typically, I'll I'll buy a Washington uh, General elk tag, and uh, I've I've only drawn these uh, limited entry reservation tags. Uh, this will be my third time, so it, that don't come around too often. No, but it's got to be really fun when it does. I, there's something when you have like, uh, when you have a limited entry tag in your pocket, doesn't it seem like the entire summer it just has more excitement to it? Like you know this is coming, you plan harder, you shoot more, you exercise more. Because you know there's something special coming versus, I mean, I think there is a difference between just an elk hunt and a, a limited entry elk hunt in that regard. Yeah, uh, the reservation, we draw super late. So uh, we just drew, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, so we find out pretty late. Um, but I have I have drawn a, a good Montana tag. And, you know, that, that draw comes a lot earlier. And I, I agree with that. You know, the, the preparation is tenfold of what it normally would be yeah yeah and it looked like you i mean i'm trying to like piece together the story from from all the pictures you have but it looks like you ended up with a really nice bull after what appeared to be a pretty hard hunt 
Yeah, there was uh, one thing with that. That hunt was I'm so used to calling being out of Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of steep country. It's really timbered. So so calling is extremely beneficial. And uh, going over there to Montana where it's so open, there were so many elk that, that the big bulls didn't seem to care about the calls. You know, I I was able to call in some smaller bulls and that the big bulls just they don't care when they have, you know, 80 cows with them. So it, it was kind of, kind of a little bit of a culture shock almost of uh, figuring out different tactics on how to sneak up on those big open sage flat bulls. Yeah. It, I mean, that's the other thing I was going to comment on is, I mean, I don't know where you <laughs> shot the bull, but where he tipped over, there's almost nothing to hide behind. Was that a South, like an Eastern side of the state tag? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I just met, I've I just found out through this podcast that I have a cousin that is an outfitter in that part of the area. But I always thought, like, man, it's got to be hard to hunt elk in the open because calling is only going to be so effective if you can't set up a, a collar shooter and there's nothing to hide behind. I mean, you're basically, like, crawling through sage to get close enough, right? Well, so the the elk herd was, was moving up um... – one of the ridges leading up to their, their bedding area. And, um, I was getting ready to come home, uh, within the next couple of days. So we kind of just made a effort. Uh, I have a brother that lives over there and we, um, we just decided to more or less every time the elk would look away, we would just run across this, uh, this sage flat leading up to the ridge. And every time they'd, they'd stop to, you know, pick up their head and look around, we would just kind of, red light green light the whole way it, it had to have been a mile or so before we were able to 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 get in close enough and um we we snuck up behind the elk and uh, i was able to get a shot at 63 yards on that one wow so was it a whole herd like a this bull and a, and a full harem of cows that you were trying to dodge eyeballs with uh he was actually one of the satellite bulls um he was probably one of i'd say about five or six bulls in that herd um, there was a, a great big bull in, in the front, you know, kind of leading the way. And, you know, he was one of the bigger bulls towards the back. So, man, I'm looking at the pictures right now and it's hard to believe that that's a satellite bull in any unit in America. But that, I mean, I believe it. It's just, that's a big bull. I mean, that's a solid bull. Yeah. Um, I, I almost, uh, I almost shot the wrong bull. Um, we kind of popped up there like on the other side of the picture there's some some pinion junipers and mm-hmm. uh, when we first got up on the that ridge with them uh, a different bull had walked out and i just about uh you know did the the blackout mode and uh <laughs> shot the wrong bull but i was able to to hold off a little bit and, and connect on the right one we were targeting oh yeah that looks cool that looks cool. What I've noticed from the those all of the, actually really all of the bulls that you've got pick that you've tagged, they're all wide bulls, or at least they look yeah. wide. I've never shot a wide bull. I've shot two decent bulls, but both of them were. I think one was like thirty four inches wide, and the other one was like thirty three inches wide. Very narrow bulls by all by all accounts, really for a mature bull. And so I'm 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 look I I just. I feel like those wide ones just add a different add a different aspect when they're, you know, 40, 45 inches wide that just 
frame looks so much more impressive. Yeah, I think that Montana bull is probably 46 or 47 inches wide inside. Uh, I'm a pretty big guy, so the uh, I, I typically make my animals look uh, smaller. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's nothing making that elk look smaller. It looks a pretty big elk. But, yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, the the 354 that I that I tagged that was the one that was only 34 inches wide so thir- like imagine taking 13 14 inches off of your bowl and then adding it back in tine length and mass really it came back in mass to make it 354 anyway i mean it's it looks extremely narrow for how big everything else is yeah i sh- i shot a similar bowl i don't know if it's um if it's on my Instagram or not, um, it might be on one of the pictures that I have of my wall at my house, but I, I have one bowl that came out of Oregon. That's kind of the same thing, you know, it has a, like a 34, 35 inch inside spread and just really long tined. Okay. Are all those, so I see some mounts. Well, one of them looks like the Rocky mountain elk foundation building. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that, um, okay. I think that's when I first uh, got my Instagram and was just putting up pictures. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, those. The, it's. I'm waiting for a wide one, and I think maybe it was just where I was hunting. They didn't weren't known for wide bulls, or maybe I just picked a, a narrow bull. But I'd love to shoot a nice big wide one because I think it just makes. I just think it makes them look like really really cool to have all that that space and that big like the big hoop like the big frame i think that looks really cool on a on a mature bull but. yeah I, I think some of that's genetic too you know um here in the with the rl curd where i work you know we're we're kind of plagued with short thirds and uh we get that that double royal quite a bit um and it seems to just be a gene that stays in there well, that's not a – I mean, short so, thirds aren't the best thing, but they're usually short anyway, so that double royal is definitely not a problem. You'd love to see that on every elk. Yeah. So, the you know, if, if you're hunting an area that historically has wide bulls, I'd say your chances of, of getting a wide bull would be pretty good. Well, the one thing is we've never – we usually don't hunt the same unit multiple years in a row because we're all non-residents, and so we all have to bounce around – to get the tags. And so like this year, it's a brand new unit for us as well. Um, last year was a new unit to archery hunt the year before that we rifle hunted instead. So that didn't count. And then, you know, we do have a favorite spot, but it takes us like three or four years to draw that tag. Yeah. And that gets worse every year. So, but, um, how does it how does it compare? Because I've seen you've done some African hunting, and it looks like you used your bow for some of it as well. So how does it compare? Is there like a is there a major difference between the animals over there in like shot placement, shooting distances, like arrow design, or is it pretty similar to an elk? So I I think um, I think elk are still the the toughest thing that most bow hunters will ever go up against you know elk just have this will to live that seems unmatched you know they they're so strong and they're they're such amazing animals i, I don't know that there's an animal as tough as an elk um the, the african stuff i went on that safari probably seven years ago and 
the the game over there is a lot thinner skinned. I wasn't quite sure on what I was getting into going over there. So uh, I was told by the, the pH just to aim farther forward than we're used to. So I was almost aiming just straight up from the leg. Oh, interesting. On on all my shots, they said, uh, you know, the, the African game, they were explaining to me that the, the, the muscle and bone structure of the African games pushed farther forward um, in the chest cavity. So they said just straight up the leg. And I, I brought over a pretty heavy arrow. I, I think my arrow was probably about 560 grains or so. Mm-hmm. And um, I got passed through, and I'm skipping arrows off the ground into the trees through through everything. And, um, yeah, I, I'd say none of it was compared to elk. Interesting, yeah. Do when the, when the African game was hit, in your experience, I mean, obviously, it's just you can only talk to your experience. But did they, would they run as hard and as long as an elk, or would they tip over a little faster? Because in our experience, when you hit an elk, man, they they death run down the mountain and they can cover like we've double lung some elk and they still cover 150, 200 yards or farther before they tip over. Yeah the the only animal um, the the pH we were hunting with he had a a camcorder going the whole time and. The only animal that didn't die on video was uh, the wildebeest I shot, and he made it probably 150 yards or so. Okay. Uh, everything else just seemed, uh, you know, that they'd run out there and, um, you know, on camera end up tipping over within about 100 yards. Would they just, like, kind of stop and think about what happened and what spooked them and then eventually run out of, like, blood and tip over? Yeah. And then uh, all, all the shots were super close. It was pretty thick in the area where we hunted it, and it was flat, so most of it was out of elevated ground blinds. And so I'd, I'd say my farthest shot was probably 26 yards. Oh, wow. And so at, some that, of... that's something I, I'm not used to either. So Yeah, 26 yards, and it's, for the most part, pretty large game. Like, it's they're giving you a big bullseye to aim at. Yeah, the the kudu um, was probably uh, the closest size to an elk. They're just skinny. So if if you put say fifty pounds more meat in their hindquarters and uh, about the same in their front shoulders, they'd be about the same shape as a, a big bull elk. Is a kudu the one with the big, long, twisted horn that goes up in a spiral? Yeah. Okay, those look pretty cool. Those look really cool, actually. That's a pretty cool looking animal. Yeah, I was just curious about that. I wonder if what you saw over there is because you were shooting such a – I assume you, if you're a bigger guy too, you're probably shooting like a longer draw and maybe a higher weight bow and with that heavy arrow just punching through so fast. I've heard people talk about they used to see a bunch of deer die on camera when they were shooting fixed blades and then the mechanical blades all came about and everyone switched to them, but they started getting less pass-throughs um, and deer started, it seemed like deer were running harder after they got hit with those mechanicals because it was cutting wider, hitting harder, more energy transferring to the animal instead of punching right through. And so they knew that it's almost like they knew they got hit by something and they would take off versus they thought when they were shooting those heavier fixed blades, they'd punch through and the animal would maybe go into shock so fast that they're like, I don't know what happened. And then they'd run 50 yards and stop and look back and then tip over. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I've never um, I've never heard that, but 
thinking of of all the elk I've shot, the the farthest they've ran were all with mechanicals. I, I've I've went back and forth. I'm I'm mainly a fixed blade guy, um, and thinking of all the the elk I've shot with a fixed blade broadhead, you know they'll stand there more or less. Um, they'll jump out of ways and try to figure out what happened and uh, eventually just kind of tip over and. The the couple of big bulls I've shot with a mechanical head, they're they're running a lot harder. Did you? Uh, I I totally agree with that. Did you get pass throughs with both broadhead types? So I, I shot um, a big bull frontal with one of the older rages, um, so that just kind of went went fletchings deep um, in that bull. And then my Montana bull, I shot with a sever, and it it buried in his offside shoulder, so that wasn't a pass through. Um, but I have shot a a smaller bull with the original Ulmer Edge, which I, I think is what the the Sever Broadheads based off of uh, from Trophy Taker. Okay. And uh, I I did get a pass through with that, um, but for my fixed blade heads, I've I've gotten a lot of pass throughs. Yeah. Do you switch your broadhead based on the game you're taking? Because like I'm looking at an antelope and an elk side by side. Is that something where you'll switch your broadhead over? just like a mechanical just to get a wider cut on an antelope and, and more accuracy because it's a smaller target? I'm pretty much switching my heads out if I know um, the, like antelope hunting in, in Montana, it's it gets really windy and the, the shots can be quite a bit farther. So I'll, I'll switch just to kind of cut down on that wind drift. And um, uh, for this Alaska hunt, I'm expect, expecting quite a bit of wind too. So I'm going to bring both to Alaska. I've I've been shooting my bow quite a bit with, with fixed heads and the uh, the severs. Okay. So if if it's windy, I'm going to end up using the the mechanical. Yeah, caribou aren't quite as big of bodied as an elk. Is that right, or is that am I off on that assumption? I've never seen one. Um, that there's actually there's a place close to where I live at. And I think they raise reindeer for uh, Santa villages or, you know, they okay. dress them up around <laughs> Christmas time. And so I've been really watching those caribou all, all summer or reindeer. I don't, I think it's reindeer if they're domesticated, but uh, yeah, there's, there's some pretty big ones out there. And I've been trying to gauge body size, but I don't know if that's the same body size as a, a wild caribou. Mm. Yeah, but that's a good from point. Pic- from pictures I've seen, I don't, they look like they're bigger body than a mule deer buck, I guess. Um, more closely to, I'd spike elkish. Okay. I, I guess they, they kind of look. Yeah. So you shouldn't but have too as, much as issue as, with either broadhead then. Yeah. As far as, as hunting them, this is, this is my first time to Alaska. Oh, well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. I, w- I was supposed to go last year on a moose hunt, but, um, I, I broke my leg early in the uh, on Memorial Day weekend, and I, I wasn't able to make the moose hunt last year. <laughs> yeah, that would be a, a pretty rough moose hunt without being able to train a majority of the summer and then expect to go in after a moose and haul it out. Oof, that'd be a tough hunt. Yeah, so the, the hunting season last year wasn't too eventful. <laughs> well, it gives you a chance to maybe sit back, relax, think of new dreams and new places you want to go and new animals you want to hunt. So might be some, some, uh, benefit to it. Yeah. And I, I, the outfitter under 
withstood, you know, the the special circumstances. And they let me rebook the hunt for 2025. So I'm still going to go on the moose hunt, but it just I just got to wait longer. Oh, sorry about that, folks. We had a brief technical issue if you uh, hear a gap. But, no, I was asking um, – on the African stuff, I've always been curious. Is that something that it's it's more attainable than people think for, like, an average hunter? Or is it something where you really got to plan that out and make it, like, a 10-year goal if you want to do that? No, I'd, I'd say the African stuff is more obtainable than, I'd say, a lot of the North American hunts. Um, so my African hunt was, it was $5,000, and it was... I think the original package included a a kudu and then a wildebeest or zebra, an impala, and a warthog um, was the original agreement. But when I when I got over there, um, it seems the 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 tags are just whatever they allow you in that area. And so one thing that the pH told me was, if if Hoyt comes out with a new bow, say, in October, they don't get it in Africa, he was telling me, until about the next year. So I I went over there with a new bow, and I had new equipment. So he, he was also a, a hard, hardcore bow hunter. So we just started trading um, different equipment for, I guess, more animals. I'd... So you just said, like, so... It, did it work out that you're like, hey, if you want to shoot, like, extra animals, I'll trade your bow for it, and then, like, you just used your bow for the whole hunt, and then you left it with him when you left? Yeah, so uh, he was actually the one that was, like, picking my gear that he wanted, and I don't know if he had an agreement out with, uh, you know, with whoever runs runs that area. South Africa is a, a lot different than it is in the uh, U.S., so he just kind of, well, he's like, you can shoot this now for your sight and, and your quiver. And uh, I, I sh- should have traded in my bow case because coming back through customs with an empty bow case, um, they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. Okay. So was $5,000, man, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. Was that, I obviously travels probably not included with that, but was that lodging and food while you were there as well? Yeah, so it was, um, I, I think our flights were, we booked them pretty early, um, and I think the flights to Johannesburg from Washington State were around 16, 1700 bucks round trip. Hmm. I mean, that's and obviously so, not something someone just goes and buys tomorrow, but I mean, that could be like yeah. a one or two year goal, and pick up a couple extra shifts a week, and all of a sudden you're there. Yeah, one one thing that I I didn't know uh, when I booked the hunt was South Africa is a lot more, I guess, more of a canned hunt. Um, we were on a uh, on a property. Um, it was sixteen thousand uh, hectares, which I think is probably I, I don't know, um, like fifty thousand acres or something. I'm not sure the conversion, but um, so it was a high fence hunt, but we did see kudu jump over the fence. And I was unaware that the hunt would be like that. Mm. Um, I, I guess all of South Africa is like that. We, we were up farther North on the, the border of uh, Botswana on the Limpopo river. So um, most of the, the ground we were on didn't have a fence along that river. Um, 
so game was free to go back and forth from Botswana to South Africa where we were. But yeah, I I didn't know it was going to be like that. I was expecting. Um, I I'd, I'd say when we were hunting, we never seen the fence actually, but um, I, I'm more accustomed to you know a backcountry elk hunt or yeah, you know um, something more North American. Yeah, no, that's that's it's a good insight. So if anyone wants to um to go and do that hunt to be aware, like, hey, just ask. Like, if that's important to you, ask about it um, and pick it accordingly. But you'd almost think, like, if it was a canned high-fence hunt, that it would be more expensive. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that property, since they were on that river, I, I'm, I could be wrong, but at, at the time we went, um, I think Botswana didn't allow for hunting. So there was a lot of big animals moving back and forth across that river um mm. you know it, it wasn't much of a river you know and in washington we got pretty big rivers so i'd i'd call that a, a crick but no yeah true that's fair that is fair especially if animals are easily crossing it it's obviously not like the missouri river or the you know the um mississippi river so yeah interesting did you see when you were there did you see any like extraordinary animals like did you have any lions come in or like any pre big predators big cats or or like elephants and stuff like that obviously i know those tags are a completely different price range but i was just curious if you saw anything like that while you're there yeah so um i i got tired of sitting in the blind um and so we went for a walk down by the river and uh <laughs> i got kind of a yellowstone uh touristy about it Okay. Because we, we see we see a herd of elephants, and so I'm standing there, and I, I get out my camera, and I'm excited to see elephants, and uh, the the PH didn't notice them, so I I get out my my camera in true uh, Yellowstone tourist fashion to take some pictures, and he turns around and asks me what I'm doing, and um, <laughs> he I kind of got an ear beaten from him because I guess that situation can get dangerous pretty fast. Um, there was, uh, some bulls in the herd with, uh, some young calves as well. And I guess they get pretty t territorial and we were too close for his comfort anyway. But, uh, there I was with my camera <laughs> trying to take pictures. How close were you? Uh, we were, I'd say a hundred yards or so, but I guess, I guess that's pretty close for wild elephants. Well, I, I've seen videos of them running and they can run pretty darn fast. I wonder, like, obviously it's dangerous no matter what you do, but if you got into a situation, I wonder if we are, like, nimble enough to, like, you like kind of like a bull in a matador situation where, like, they're going to charge you and then you just duck, dart to the side and they can't maybe turn as fast. I don't know. It would be a pretty stupid thing to try if they're like, no, they can turn pretty darn fast and clip you. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. A lot of that, that brush over there, you know, it's a uh, – I don't know if you've ever hunted Arizona or not, but it seems like – Arizona, every every plant wants to rip you and poke you, and uh, South oh. Africa's, yeah, worse. That I mean, every every plant over there has, you know, it's what size a thorn it has is more the question. And I think those elephants are just mow it all over. I don't. Th there's not really much to hide behind where we were. Yeah, you know, that wouldn't be a long term play. It would be like I'm gonna avoid the first charge and hopefully the <coughs> pH can take care of it. But yeah, I suppose you have to decide, am I gonna take my chances with the elephant or am I gonna go through the meat grinder on the brush? Yeah. That sounds interesting. Um But that... uh, lucky for us the elephants never noticed us, so uh we were we were fine. 
Okay, cool. Did you? How does it work for like taxidermy? You're taking your animals home. Do, are you able to do that? Or I know that sometimes they hold on to them for a certain number of years. So um, the way we done it was, um, I, I talked to my normal taxidermist, and he told me that they will try to get you to hire a trophy consultant. Um, he said it's a big ripoff. Don't do it. It's not worth your money. And he, he told me kind of the, the game plan. He's had other clients go to Africa and, and do it both ways. So he, he said, make sure to specifically tell them that I want my trophies to go to the Seattle port, not, um, you know, JFK or whatever the, the port is in uh, New York City. And so when, when I did that, the, the taxidermist there and the, the trophy consultant kind of knew, I guess, what I was up to. So they weren't too happy about it. But I just had my shipment sent to Seattle, which is about four and a half hours from where I live. So I just drove over there and I, I went to Fish and Game and, and got a piece of paper and I brought it to uh, Delta Cargo and then brought it back to Fish and Game and had the, the paper signed and brought it back over. And it was, um, you know, th- those two buildings were a mile apart. So it was 15 um, minutes of work that I guess could have cost me a thousand extra bucks. And they just sent it in a, in a big crate. So did they send, like, did they just send like your skull caps and like a tanned hide or a salted hide or did they did you have to get it mounted over in africa so the my taxidermist told me um that over in africa they they tend to he he said they pickle their their hides and it's um it's not as good of a process as the the soft tanning that the taxidermist in north america use okay so he, he'd also told me just to have them salt salt the capes and we would um, be able to work on them from there. So I, I just had them salt all my capes, and they sent over the skull caps. Okay, so is it was it – well, first of all, like the people that you go with or like your professional hunter or PH, was was that an American person or was that not an American person? No, he was a South African. Okay, uh, but obviously there's not a very strong communication barrier. Like he spoke English just fine, and you could like communicate what you wanted. Yeah. How did you find, like, so one thing that I would be worried about is, like, going to a new continent, doing a new thing. Like, how did you find, like, this is the person I want to hunt with? Or, like, this is the trip I want to go on. Did you meet this person while he was, like, promoting at trade shows in the States? Or or how did you know that this was a place that you wouldn't, basically, that you would go to and you're not going to get ripped off? Um, the, This was a connection from... um. Um, my, my brother in Montana, he, uh, he lined up everything and, um, he has a friend in New York who has been on this, this hunt with, with this, um, uh, his name's Yanni, uh, a few times. So he, he lined everything up, oh, okay. um, for us to go. So it, he, he knew about Yanni and got us all set up with the hunt. Oh, so that helps, like knowing someone that's been there before and has done it, because that would be my biggest thing, like going in blind, and they say, yeah, you can, you know, for example, they'll tell you maybe on the phone, like, yeah, you can do whatever you want, we'll send your hides wherever, then you get over there, and they're like, ah, never mind, we're just going to use our own taxidermist, and then, like, shipping would be a nightmare to ship, like, a a shoulder mount over. Yeah. And then uh, the the guy that was also there in camp. His name was John. He was a, um, 
uh, a New York police officer and he gets his stuff taxidermied over there and he said it, it takes them about two years to, to get his mounts back to him. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, to be fair, it took me about two years to get my elk back. So, and that was from yeah. my guy in my hometown. <clears throat> so, um, wow, that sounds cool. I, I never really have had the African bug, but hearing you talk about it and looking at the, the story, I do think it would be fun. Um, I don't know if it, how, where it would rank for me, but just the, the shot opportunity and the, like the game and just, I feel like it's like type one fun, not type two fun where like an elk hunt, like a backcountry elk hunt's like type two fun, right? You, you, it's kind of grueling when you're doing it, but you look back on it and just love the, love the story and love that you did it. Whereas like, I would say Africa is probably like more type one fun where it's just a fun, easy going hunt, but maybe not one that you're going to tell the most stories about because it wasn't like as grueling or, or challenging or, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and that was something since, since I didn't line up the hunt, I didn't know, uh, what exactly we were getting into, but yeah, that we were, we were eating good every night and, um, you know, the pH would, would drop me off, um, you know, food and stuff in, in the blind at midday. So yeah, it was for sure. Type one, uh, fun. Cool. Cool. Did you get to eat any of the animals? Cause I know typically the animals go towards like the local people or like most of the meat goes towards the local people, but did you get to eat any parts of it? Yeah. So we, um, we actually made some jerky while we were in camp. Um, uh, my mom actually went on the hunt too. So yeah. Yeah. The, I got a, a black bear, um, in a trap. So that's, that's why everyone's calling me. We got to go collar this black bear. Oh, well, I'm definitely not cutting that part out of the st- podcast because that sounds really cool. <laughs> but yeah, we've uh we've been um so w- along the lines of our elk herd, um we've noticed some some population dynamics and some bull cat ratios that have been off um really make, making our rut length really long. So when tribal members get a cow tag for the general rifle season we'll take out the embryos and we can tell the the date that cow was bred okay so what i started noticing was you know we were getting cows bred as early as labor day weekend and we were getting cows bred as late as halloween oh um for for years and um quite a while i think going back to 07 or so we were allowing for like a open general spike bull harvest in the south portion of the reservation okay and and so we're really cutting down on our bull recruitment so our our bull cow ratios are pretty low you know we were getting really old bulls who were getting wise to the hunts and we were getting a lot of spike harvest every year so we were kind of missing that middle age class of bull um like looking into our population dynamics and i think a lot of spikes were trying to do a lot of the breeding so they're they're missing cows and the cows are forced to second even third estrus. Um, so we're also tacking on a black bear study and we're looking into like neonatal. Go. Um... Okay, I I finally texted him. I told him to quit calling. Okay. Well. Uh, but I I am on my way back out there. Yeah. Okay. So it does sound like. So it sounds like you're studying, it kind of got choppy there, but it sounds like you're studying if there's 
more predation from black bears on calves because they're having a longer drop window? Yeah, just just because, you know, elk and a lot of the other cervid and game species, they're evolved to, you know, to really focus that, that rut length, you know, and con- condense it. So, you know, there's less predation. And you get a big boar black bear that gets into a calving ground, and if, say, that that black bear can eat one calf a day, you know, if, if our rut length ends up being 60 days, that's potentially 60 calves he can... Uh, right can eat so yeah i definitely get it um i definitely get that that uh the predation thing and so it's really cool that you guys are able to do studies like that and make an impact because you got a kind of a fixed landscape that you're dealing with with the reservation so that sounds pretty cool yeah so but right before the black bear topic came up you said that you guys were able to make some jerky in camp and so did you bring some of that home then no, it's it's actually illegal to bring back any meat, so that that meat has to stay in Africa. Oh, well, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's especially being like a, a North American hunter, you know the the meats, you know, like your main prize as well. So not being able to bring any of that home was kind of a bummer. Did it? Do you feel like most of the meat went to good causes though? Like it was feeding people in Africa, or or did they not use most of it? Uh. I think they use most of it. I think they they mentioned that there was a, a meat processing facility where they make a lot of sausage and stuff too, and I think that's where they were planning on on taking it. So, oh well, at least that's good. At least that's yeah. good. But man, Derek, just like that, we've we've been racked up an hour, and uh, obviously you got to go deal with the black bear, and so I will. Um, I'll wrap this up, and it's been an amazing podcast talking to you, talking about Africa and all the cool adventures you've done here in North America as well. But before we do that, if you'd like to give the listeners a a quick rundown of your socials and the Instagram and where they could go and maybe look at some of these pictures we've been talking about, uh, feel free to do so. Okay, yeah, uh, my Instagram is, um, heck, I don't even know it. I think it's Derek underscore Abrahamson. Yep. Um and it's just spelt like that. Uh, I, I should upload a lot more. I have a, a lot cooler pictures on my phone. I'm just not the, the best social media guy. So um, I, I, don't, I don't do the Facebook thing or anything like that either. So, Cool. Well, we'll put a link to your Instagram. There's a lot of cool pictures on there already. So if you upload more, it's just going to be that much better. But I will, um, I'll let you go. I'll let you take care of that bear, put a collar on it, add to your study, and I will... Um, Obviously, if you, I'd love to have you on again in the future if you have some cool stories from the, the exciting hunts you're going on this fall. And for everyone else, thank you for listening. <laughs>